Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I do want to apologize up front. I am feeling a little bit under the weather this week, so if my voice sounds a little bit off, it's because it is. But that's not going to keep us from moving forward. We're going to continue working our way through everyone's favorite New Testament book to talk about, and that is the book of Revelation. And this is actually our third episode on Revelation now. And if you haven't listened to the first two episodes yet, I encourage you to go back and listen to those before you listen to this one, or at least the episode before this one. And I I know we say those kind of things a lot, but I think it's especially important in this case because Revelation is a complicated book, and we've laid a lot of groundwork over the past couple of episodes, and there's just too much for us to quickly recap here. So make sure you go back and listen to those last couple of episodes before this one if you haven't already. Now, last week, we covered Revelation 6 through 10, and again, we don't have time for a detailed review, but we talked about the seven seals and the seven trumpets. We didn't quite finish the trumpets, and remember we said some people view these as sequential, literal events, and some see them as describing the entire period between Christ's first and second coming. They'll say that John is using a recursive pattern to describe the same events using different imagery. So he'll describe the same things from a slightly different angle. And it's important to remind us what I've said the past couple of episodes here. We need to have humility as we interpret Revelation. Last time we talked about how prophecy is somewhat vague on purpose. God doesn't want us to know all the details, and he doesn't want evil to know his full plans either. So the reality is, We're not going to fully know everything until hindsight. And so this is why I'm giving you multiple views as we go through the book. I'm not saying here's just the the one view because I don't think we can say that confidently. I don't think that was God's intention in giving us the book of Revelation. His intention wasn't to give us every little detail about the end times. But there are some major magnificent truths that we can take from Revelation. Now, at the end of our reading last week, we saw that the seventh seal led to the seven trumpets. And the last three trumpets are also called the three woes. And after the sixth trumpet, there's a bit of an interlude. And John is told to eat a scroll. Okay, He's told to eat a scroll. And it's sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. And we said this represents that John has to take God's words into himself before he can speak them, before he can prophesy more. And we said God's word is always good. It's always sweet to the taste. But these are also words of judgment. So they make John's stomach bitter at the same time. And that's where we left off last week. Now, getting into Revelation 11. Again, we have some difficult symbolism here. We start off with John being given a measuring rod. And he's told to measure the temple of God. 
and the altar and to count those who worship there. Now, this is reminiscent of Ezekiel, who's also giving a measuring rod, and he's told to measure the temple in his vision in Ezekiel 40. Now, keep in mind, the, the heavenly Jerusalem is also measured later in Revelation. Now, some people see the temple being described in Revelation 11 as a literal temple. They'll say the, the temple and the altar in Jerusalem will be rebuilt at some point. But others will point out that the temple later in Revelation 11 refers to God's heavenly temple. And the temple, even later in Revelation, in chapters 21 and 22, refers to the entire new creation. And keep in mind that the temple in the New Testament usually refers to the people of God. So in other words, the word temple may not refer to a physical earthly building in Revelation. And in fact, some interpreters would say that the temple and the altar and the worshipers here are three different ways of describing the people of God. And John being told to measure them represents God's protection and his oversight of his people. They are under his control, under his sovereign lordship. And what's interesting is that John is told not to measure the courtyard outside the temple. So the courtyard is given to the nations or unbelievers who will trample the holy city for 42 months. And again, some will say that this refers to a literal courtyard outside of a a literal rebuilt temple. And they'll say that unbelievers will defile the courtyard and control Jerusalem for 42 months. Other people will see symbolism here. They'll say that this refers to, to unbelievers persecuting believers who are heirs of the holy city or new Jerusalem. In other words, God is protecting his people. They will be spared from his ultimate wrath, but they will still face persecution. And as far as the timeline here, some see the the 42 months or 1,260 days, both of which refer to three and a half years. Some see these as literal references. So they would see these three and a half years as occurring during the seven-year tribulation. And other people see this time period as figurative. But undoubtedly, John is picking up on Daniel 9 here. Remember we talked about the 70 weeks of Daniel in the last episode. And in Daniel's final week, his 70th week, it talks about someone putting a stop to sacrifices in the middle of the week. So some people will say that this refers to Jesus, that he puts an end to sacrifices because he's the perfect sacrifice. So the second half of that final week could refer to the entire time between Christ's first and second comings when evil is allowed to reign. Keep in mind that seven is a number of perfection and three and a half is half of that representing potentially imperfection. So again, this could represent the entire amount of time that evil is allowed to reign. Now, during the same period, two witnesses are going to prophesy, and then a beast will come from the abyss and make war on them, and then these two witnesses will be killed before being resurrected. So who are these two witnesses and what's going on here? Some people see two literal prophets here, but I think... That's unlikely. Again, this is personal bias coming out here. Because in a parallel passage in Revelation 13, 7, it talks about how the beast is permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. So the two witnesses are probably a way of representing all of God's people, the church. And there are two witnesses because the Old Testament emphasizes the importance of having two witnesses to confirm the importance of what's said. That's why there are two, but this is representing the entire people of God, the saints. 
So who is the beast? And this is our first introduction to the beast in Revelation. In John's context, the beast probably referred to the Roman Empire. But it, it probably refers to evil government regimes in general. Now, some would say this is a specific end-time empire. But regardless, if the two witnesses represent God's people or the church, John is saying that the church will be persecuted and will be scorned by the world. Now, I don't think we should see this as saying that all believers are going to be martyred or killed. But in general, the church is going to be marked by suffering. And it talks about the corpses of the witnesses being left in the street here. And understand that in the ancient world, not burying your dead was a disgrace. So this is saying that in the eyes of the world, the church will be viewed as disgraceful, as shameful. But after three and a half days, things begin to change. Evil is only allowed to reign for so long here in Revelation 11. God's saints are eventually vindicated. They go to be in God's presence. They're taken up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watch. So in the end, God's people will be saved. And remember that John is writing to encourage suffering saints here. And I think this interpretation fits that. But again, some people do see this as referring to two literal prophets who will be martyred and resurrected in the end times during the seven-year tribulation. Now, this marks the end of the second woe or the sixth trumpet. Now, the seventh trumpet, again, seems to bring the end of history, just like we talked about with the sixth and seventh seals. It says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So there's, there's joy in heaven. The elders worship. They give thanks. And then in verse 18, it says, the time has come for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints. This is describing the final judgment. And then God's temple is opened, which indicates free access to God. But there's also thunder and earthquakes and hail for those who have refused him. This is the third and final woe, which makes sense considering this is describing the final judgment. And remember, it is possible that John is writing in a recursive pattern where he's describing similar events from slightly different perspectives. So speaking of that, chapters 12 through 14 may be surveying things from yet another perspective. So we're done with the seals and trumpets. Now we're going to take a break before we go to the seven bowls. Because remember we said there's three sets of seven in Revelation, three sets of seven judgments. You have the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. We've done the seals and trumpets. Now there's a little bit of a break before we get to the bowls. So we actually start here with a woman clothed with the sun who has 12 stars on her head. And she's pregnant. And her son is the one who will rule all nations with an iron rod. We also see that her child is caught up to God and to his throne. And there's a beast who tries to stop all of this. And the woman flees to the wilderness where God nourishes her for 1,260 days. There's that number again. So what's going on here? Well, clearly the son refers to Jesus. So some would say that the woman is Mary, which seems to make sense. But she likely actually represents the people of God. God's chosen people from whom the Messiah comes. She's described as having a crown of, of 12 stars, which is a reference to Israel. And she's clothed with the sun and she stands with the moon under her feet. In other words, she's in a position of ruling and authority. 
And we know from scripture that God's people are one often described as God's bride, but they're also described as rulers. So again, this woman probably represents the people of God from whom the Messiah comes. And she also suffers birth pains, just as Israel suffers figurative labor pains in the Old Testament. Then we have a dragon come on the scene. So there's there's cosmic conflict going on here. Who is this dragon? Well, John actually tells us later in Revelation in chapter 20, verse 2. It's one of the few symbols that he actually interprets for us. He says, the dragon is that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. So the dragon is Satan. And the dragon sweeps a third of the stars to earth. Now, what does this mean? Well, some people see this as referring to one third of the angels that fell with Satan. But did you know that there's actually nowhere in scripture that directly says that one third of the angels fell with Satan? This Revelation 12 here, this is actually the only possible reference. And it's really referring to spiritual war going on during the time of Christ's birth. So what's the problem with that? Well, Satan's rebellion happened long before that. So it's probably not referring to the fall of angels here. And in Daniel chapter 8, verse 10, the stars who are thrown to the ground and trampled are Israelites. So this could actually be a reference to Satan persecuting God's people. But regardless, next we see a war between Michael the archangel and his angels against Satan and his angels. So again, some would see this as referring to Satan's original fall, but it more likely refers to Satan's defeat through Jesus' death and resurrection. It says that now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So I believe that this refers to the fact that Satan no longer has any basis to accuse believers before God. Because if you think about it, before Christ's death and resurrection, Satan could bring legitimate accusations against God's people. There was no ultimate forgiveness or payment for their sins. But now, through the cross, Satan no longer has any grounds for accusation. He has no standing in heaven. He's been defeated. Now, he's still active in the world, but he has no ultimate claim on believers any longer. And he knows his time is short. It says that in verse 12. He knows that. Now, I want to pause here because this passage is significant for a few reasons. First, this reminds us that there's more to reality than our physical world. There's a spiritual war going on. But understand the battle's already been won. Satan has no claim on your life. So when you are tempted to believe his lies, remember that Satan has no legitimate grounds to accuse you in God's presence. He has no ultimate power over your life. Jesus has already won the victory. And even though Satan's influence is still very real, even he knows that his time is short. His time is limited. And one day soon, evil will be no more. So I tell you that to encourage you, just as John is writing to encourage suffering believers, we should find hope here in this passage. Now, in the rest of chapter 12, we have to keep moving here. We see that while Satan is on the earth for his limited time, he declares war on the saints. 
who are described here as the offspring of the woman and also as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So Satan has declared war on the saints. He knows he can't ultimately win, but he wants to wreak as much havoc as he can in the meantime. Then at the end of chapter 12, we see Satan stands on the sand of the sea, okay, which leads to chapter 13 because then we see a beast rising out of the sea. Now we're going to see two different beasts described in this chapter. The first beast is described in the first 10 verses, and the second beast is described in verses 11 through 18. So the dragon and the two beasts form a sort of unholy trinity to contrast with the real trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So we have this first beast coming up out of the sea. And remember in the ancient world, the sea represented evil and chaos and danger. So the beast comes out of the sea and he has 10 horns and seven heads with 10 crowns on its horns. We have more imagery here. But once again, this imagery is from the Old Testament, just like we've seen over and over again. In this case, the imagery comes from Daniel 7, where he has a vision of four different beasts. And those beasts represent different kingdoms. Now, when you come to Revelation, the beast in Revelation is actually a composite of all four beasts from Daniel 7. So in Revelation, the beast, he looks like a leopard, which is like the third beast that Daniel saw. But it has feet like a bear, resembling the second beast, and a mouth like a lion, like Daniel's first beast. And it has ten horns, like the fourth beast. So it's actually a composite of all four beasts from Daniel 7. Now, in Daniel 7, the ten horns represent ten kings. So some say that the ten horns here of the beast in in Revelation represent a coalition of ten nations in the end times from whom the figure known as the Antichrist will come. And they say that this first beast actually represents the Antichrist. They say that he will, he will demand worship, he will blaspheme God, he will wage war against the saints. Others say that since the four beasts in Daniel represent kingdoms, and since this beast in Revelation is a composite of those four, this beast probably represents every evil human empire. So in John's context, he would have pictured the Roman Empire, but it could represent every evil totalitarian regime that persecutes the church and demands worship. Because understand that Satan isn't limited to one kingdom or one time period. He has exerted his influence throughout the ages. So regardless of your interpretation here, one thing is clear. The beast in Revelation gets his authority from the dragon who is Satan. So this confirms that Satan and his evil angels are behind much of what we see going on in the world. Like Paul says, our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of darkness. Now, in Revelation 13.10, it says, This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. John, again, reminds us why he's writing. He's writing to encourage suffering Christians. Now, in the second half of chapter 13, we see the second beast. And later in chapter 16, This beast is called the false prophet. Now he looks like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. He's deceptive. And this false prophet exercises authority on behalf of the first beast. He performs signs. He deceives the inhabitants of the earth. So some people see a literal end time prophet here. 
a false prophet who will perform signs and cause people to worship the first beast who is the Antichrist. But other people, people who see the first beast as representing evil government regimes, say that the second beast represents all religious authority contrary to God's word. In other words, this is representing all false religion. Now, this second beast enforces the power of the first beast through economic discrimination. People have to receive a mark on their hand or on their forehead in order to buy or sell anything. And this passage has been the cause of a lot of debates. This is known as the mark of the beast. And many people interpret this literally to mean that in the end times, there will be some way in which people will have to swear allegiance to the Antichrist in order to buy or sell anything. And again, this has been the cause of a lot of speculation. Now, others would point out that the seal on the 144,000 who represent God's people, they'll say that that seal isn't literal. It refers to their allegiance to God and God's ownership of them. So in the same way, those people would say, the mark of the beast probably isn't literal either. It refers to those who aren't sealed by God. It refers to those who have given their lives to evil, their allegiance to evil. Regardless, in some way, these two beasts seek to exclude Christians from the marketplace. Now, if the mark is a literal mark, I just want to say this. Remember that the mark would involve allegiance to evil in some way. It's not something that you accidentally take or accidentally put on your body. I know there's been a lot of speculation about this kind of stuff online, different conspiracies. But that falls into the category of what we called in our first episode of Revelation, newspaper eschatology. In other words, people are looking more to current events on how to interpret Revelation rather than looking to Scripture. We need to look to the imagery of Scripture to understand other Scripture, not to social media or the newspaper. Anyway, getting back to our chapters here, the end of chapter 13 also mentions the number of the beast, which is 666. Now, some people think this refers to a particular person, which is possible. And some people would say Emperor Nero, because if you translate Nero from Greek to Hebrew, the letters add up to 666. But this also could be a symbolic number, because remember, seven is the number of perfection. And in the ancient world, repetition was used for emphasis. So 777 would represent absolute perfection. So 666 could represent complete imperfection. It could represent all that is opposed to God and what is good. Now, moving on to chapter 14, chapter 14 is going to answer two different questions for us. First, what happens to those who don't give their allegiance to the dragon and to the beast? And then what happens to those who do? So first, what happens to those who don't give in to evil? Here, the scene shifts from earth to heaven. Jesus is with the 144,000 who, in contrast with those who have the mark of the beast, they have the name of the Father on their foreheads. And they're singing a new song, which is undoubtedly a song, a hymn of praise and victory. And it describes the saints as blameless. And in verse 14, it says the saints will have rest, meaning eternal rest. Then we have a series of, of three angels here in chapter 14. The first angel proclaims the gospel to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Now, some people say this is a final chance for conversion in the end times. Some say that this is more a proclamation of judgment on those who have rejected the gospel. 
And still others will say that, yes, there is a real possibility for salvation here, but people fail to repent. But then the second angel comes and he cries out, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now remember, Babylon was the ultimate oppressor of God's people. Babylon destroyed Solomon's temple and and took God's people into exile in the Old Testament. And then remember, ancient Babylon or Babel was the site of man's idolatry that led to God confusing their languages and scattering the nations. That was way back in, in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. So Babylon here represents the collective evil of the world, which was embodied by Rome in John's day, but there's a broader meaning here. And this angel is saying that evil has been defeated. So now a third angel comes and tells us what will happen to those who follow the beast. They will face eternal judgment. And in the rest of chapter 14, we see that come to fruition. We see what has been talked about come to fruition. We see two different harvests. The first harvest in verses 14 through 16 likely represents those who are saved, those who are marked with God's name. Then the second harvest is the trampling of the winepress. We see grapes are thrown into the winepress of God's wrath. This represents those who will face eternal judgment. And that concludes chapters 12 through 14. And just like we've seen with other section of Revelation, it ends with the final judgment. Now, chapters 15 and 16 are again going to bring us to the final judgment, but we're just going to cover chapter 15 here since that's the end of our reading for this week. But we're going to move very quickly since we're running out of time here as we wrap up. So in chapter 15, we see seven angels with seven last plagues. Now, the plagues are clearly a reference back to the exodus of the Old Testament. And that's a theme that's picked up again in verse 3 when the redeemed sing the song of Moses. If you remember back in Exodus 15, after Israel is delivered from the Egyptians by crossing the Red Sea, they sing a song. And this is an allusion to that. So understand the redemption under Moses anticipated and pointed forward to a greater redemption, a redemption that is accomplished by Jesus Christ. Then we see the seven angels are given seven bowls that will bring the final seven plagues. And that's where we will pick up next week. So we'll get into the seven bowl judgments next week. So as we wrap up, I want to say again, I know this is a lot to take in and I know this can be confusing and I know I may not be giving you satisfactory answers, but look back at the major truths that we've seen in chapter 11, which was the the seventh trumpet. God's temple is opened, which means we will have free access to God. And in chapter 12, We saw that Satan is allowed to have influence for a time, but he's limited. He has no ultimate claim on your life. He has no basis to bring accusations against you before God because Jesus has already won your victory for you. And even Satan knows that his days are numbered. He will be defeated. Then in chapter 14, we saw that the saints are described as blameless. Again, Satan has no claim on you. You're blameless and you will find eternal rest. So again, I stress, John is writing to encourage suffering, struggling Christians. So find encouragement in these pages. We need the message of revelation in the world that we live in. We need to remind ourselves that in the midst of the evil and the chaos, God is still in control. We need to remember that we've been sealed by God and that we will find eternal rest in his presence. And let's also find 
motivation in the fact that those who don't surrender to Christ, they will face eternal torment as it's described in these chapters. Some people want to try to rationalize hell away, but scripture does the opposite of that. Scripture does anything but that. Hell is very clearly in scripture taught as eternal and it's terrible. So let's use that as motivation to live for the advancement of God's kingdom. Let's live to take his gospel to every person, every tribe, every language, every tongue, every nation. And let's do it all for his glory.